Good evening. My name is Vivian Fisher, and I manage the African American Department here at the Central Library. This evening is my pleasure to introduce Ronald S. Coddington, who, when he was growing up, unlike other kids in his neighborhood, he started collecting old antique images while his friends were collecting baseball cards. Little did he realize that after he purchased his first photo in 1977, that collecting historic images would become a lifelong pursuit. He originally collected various formats of vernacular photography dating from the 1840s to the 1890s. But over time, his focus in his collection changed and he began collecting on Civil War era cartes de visite, a paper format popular during the 1860s. He has written several books, but he, um, in 2004, he began a collection of columns that became part of Ron's first book, Faces of the Civil War. Also, he wrote a companion volume, Faces of the Confederacy, an album of Southern soldiers and their stories, which was published in 2008. From there, 2012, he published African American Faces of War. In 2011, he became a contributing editor for the New York Times Disunion series. He has participated as a speaker at numerous Civil War-related events and at meetings for roundtables and other organizations. He writes, for, he writes a monthly column for the Civil War News, and he is currently Assistant Managing Editor of the Chronicle of Higher Education. Ron is also a graduate of the University of Georgia, and he lives in Arlington with his wife and pugs, Missy and Bella. It is my pleasure to welcome Ron S. Coddington to the Pratt Library. Thank you for the very kind introduction, Vivian. And uh, thanks to all of you for being here tonight. Um, I, um, I've lived with the stories of these soldiers uh, and their photographs for four years. Um, and um, it's, uh, in some ways, it's, it's very difficult to even talk about them because it's been such a personal experience, the journey that I've been on along with them. But I'm going to try to talk about it tonight uh, and give you some information about my journey um, and the stories of the soldiers, these brave men who accomplished so much and I think have been largely forgotten um, by the community today. There we go. Um, in working on a project like this, I have so many memories, so many special memories, so many, um, so many moments over time that stand out. And um, one of them uh, involves Fort Scott, Kansas, which, as you can see on the map in 1861, um, was right on the edge of Confederate-held territory. The... Um, uh, uh, 
there is a newspaper article that I found uh, dated 1863, and uh, the newspaper is the Anglo-African, and it's account of a um, Emancipation Day jubilee. And when I go back and reread the article, I'm, I feel as excited about it as the first time I read it. The description is a camp with all of the tents in rows. Um, they had taken out a bunch of tables and made a big rectangle around the headquarters where the officers were located. Um, men and women came out of town uh, for the event, husbands and wives. Uh, the um, Three of the wives of the African-American soldiers who had enlisted in a regiment, which was known as the 1st Kansas Colored Infantry, um, had sewn flags for the regiment, and those three flags were flying above the camp. Uh, all this was going on, uh, very overcast skies um, on that day, January 1st of 1863. The celebration got underway in what was called the old-fashioned Southern tradition of barbecue and speech-making. So the, uh, the article goes on to say there was the smell of um, roasted ox and hogs and chickens. Um, all of the soldiers, all the officers, all the guests gathered around the tables. They had um, cakes, coffee, bread, and they had a huge meal. And there was a lot of excitement as they waited for the speech-making to begin. Uh, the speech-making, of course, started with uh, three loud huzzas for this man. Um, and the first speaker of the day was a gentleman named C.C. Willits. He was a white man, he was a colonel, and he was from Leavenworth, Kansas. He stood up and gave witness um, to his recent experience. And here's part of what he said. If ever I entertained prejudice against men on account of their color... That prejudice has long ago been entirely eradicated from my mind. My education has led me to believe that all mankind are benefited by the more, by the universal system of allowing all men the privilege of liberty and the pursuit of happiness in the manner best suited to themselves. And today, I have no hesitation in uttering my conviction that it is the duty of the government to avail itself of every possible means within its reach to assist in putting down this rebellion. Slavery today receives its death blow. The colonel continued with a prediction, I suppose you could call it. Before many months roll overheads, the official reports of some of our generals down south will electrify the land with the details of battles wherein colored men will be mentioned favorably as having fought and bled for their country. I, I, still, um, I still get excited and emotional when I think about the ranks of men by this time now standing um, in front listening to the speakers talk, how they must have felt um, Almost to a man, um, they were uh, escaped slaves um, that had come through Missouri from Kansas and other parts of the South, and here they were listening to this. Um, but the man that they really came to listen to was this gentleman. Uh, his speech was called The Most Original 
Um, and um, it was also uh, uh, a man that, that was very much loved by the regiment. He had recruited a lot of the men. He was born in Maryland on the eastern shore. Uh, he described his father as an African from Delaware. Um, he described his mother um, as uh, um, half white, um, had a French father. He was born free. He's the heart and soul of this regiment. He stands up and he begins. And here's a couple of excerpts from his, his talk. I was not privileged enough to have been raised in a state where I could obtain an education. I am a southern man with northern principles and therefore entitled both from the fact and my color to represent the southern loyalists, a few of whom are around us today and many more awaiting our coming. I was born in Maryland and a so-called free man, but I have never known what that word meant till of late. Today is a day for great rejoicing with us. The president has proclaimed freedom. The southern loyalists hear and intend to take it. I am not surprised while I rejoice. As a thinking man, I never doubted this day would come, for I believed in God. He's, he's one of the 77 um, men profiled in my book. And one of my favorite stories, I wish I had time, I could spend the entire evening um, talking about him. But we'll go on. Um, uh, Matthews and others, you could say they waited a lifetime, but certainly the last months, those three months leading up to January 1st, between the time and September of 1862, when President Lincoln um, made it known that the Emancipa Emancipation Proclamation would be announced, um, and the day um, that it went into effect was definitely a time of tension. Um, many, many wondered if forces hostile to the president would actually let it happen. Time and time again, I heard and read, pardon me, read letters uh, and references to something called, or references to the spirit of the age. And I love that turn of phrase. Um, people were doing things and saying, it's in the spirit of the age, without really defining what that meant. There's an indefinable something that was happening around that time period of the fall of 1862 into 1863. I try to, to capture um, what I think it means um, in the introduction to my book. The period that began with President Lincoln's announcement of the Emancipation Proclamation and ended with his assassination and the surrender of the armies formed by the states in rebellion marked a dramatic transformation for Americans of African descent. It lasted no more than a heartbeat along the national lifeline from September 1862 through May 1865, an age without a name, wedged between war and peace and the enslavement of a race and the hope of universal freedom. 32 months during which the linkage of war to the abolition of slavery called ordinary citizens to examine their conscience and their faith and to act on the great ethical questions and moral themes that had rippled across society for generations. It was the dawn of a new age of equality here along the frayed edges of the ragged tears ripped across the social, economic, and political fabric of the country. Those who embraced liberty and justice for all 
began the slow and arduous process of building a new culture that bound the nation together stronger than before. The possibilities seemed endless. In the letters uh, I've read over time, the newspaper articles and um, other original primary source documents, um, some generalizations uh, that I can make, some commonalities, um, most northern uh, white people in 1861 will tell you that the war was about the preservation of the Union. If you're reading the letter or an article about um, a southern man or woman from that same time period, um, they would talk about um, the tyrannical Lincoln and getting rid of the black Republicans. But if you read some of the documents they're written by African-American men and women and children. It was always about slavery. It was always about freedom. And um, I, of all the accounts that I have read, um, these are, I think, some of the most um, heartfelt um, and most thoughtful that are available today. So um, I must confess um, my knowledge uh, of African American contributions to the Civil War uh, was not was not very strong. Um, I had done some casual reading before going into this project, but must confess again that I did not know a whole lot. Uh, my Civil War research has been mostly focused on the white perspective of the war. So. Um, this project has its origins right here in Baltimore. Um, my very first appearance um, uh, at the Baltimore uh, Book Festival um, to represent faces of the Civil War. And um, it was an outdoor event in 2004. And um, I was at the table, all the books, uh, having my little moments, first time as an author. And um, one of the first individuals that came up to the table was a woman and she picked up the book and spent I don't know how long literally going page by page through the book and I was thinking oh wow she's going to get a copy and um, we'll have a conversation about it and uh, she finished went all the way through the book and she closed it and she handed it back to me and um, she said you know, there were men of color who also fought in the Civil War. And before I could even react, she turned around and walked away. And um, I have a little fantasy that you're here tonight. <laughs> um, I guess not. I don't see anyone standing up. Um, but uh, that was an important moment for me because I knew then and there that someday I would do this book. Um, I didn't know how, um, but I knew that I would do it. So um, I'll talk a little bit about that in a while. Um, I started to do my research by contacting people that I know and the collecting community. Some folks, um, like Owens Dawson, um, had signed their photographs, as you can see here. And uh, this is um, in the possession of um, a historical society in Philadelphia. And um, I tracked it down through an auction. I had um, set out uh, my set out a pretty wide net 
in collecting ima or finding images for the book, but it really goes back to, as we found out in, in the introduction, to baseball uh, in 1976. Um, I was a young a teenager, and uh, I learned a life lesson um, after I saw an advertisement for the entire mint set in the box of 1976 baseball cards. And uh, I bought the mint set, and it came in the mail, and it completely killed my passion for collecting. I, I had all the cards. Why do I need to collect anymore? And um, uh, it was a moment. Uh, that I learned that it's really life is about the journey, not about just getting something. Another life lesson uh, was to listen to my brother. <laughs> um, we went to a flea market the next year. It was 1977. And um, I saw this photograph on a table. It was in an album. It was several albums all strewn and torn apart. And um, I didn't even know the difference between an infantryman and a Navy person at the time. So I thought this was um, a soldier when, in fact, it's a sailor. But anyway, um, I, uh, I, I refused to pay $4 for this photograph. And I went back to the car, and my brother looked at my face, and he said, uh, if you don't get that photograph, you're going to feel really bad, and, um, and you're going to be sorry. And I listened to him, and I bought the photograph, and it's the first in a collection that um, I've spent a pretty good chunk of my life um, uh, amassing. And um, as was said in the beginning, I was really um, interested in all kinds of photography at first, but eventually got into Civil War photography. So I want to talk briefly um, a bit of a lesson here, because while uh, the Civil War... Um, the years leading up to the Civil War, there's also a revolution going on in technology and photography. And I've mapped out the four major and most popular types or formats of photography um, from about 1840 through the Civil War. And the first one is the daguerreotype. And you can see with each um, format, the dates and parentheses represent roughly the years when they were the most popular. And you'll see as you go over time from the daguerreotype to the ambrotype to the tintype to the carte de visite, a couple things are going on here. Um, one of them is you'll see the exploded views are becoming a little bit bigger, a little bit smaller, because um, folks that are involved, photographers and technologists, are coming up with new ways, cheaper chemicals, cheaper materials to be able to drive the prices of photography down. And American photographers and American photographic companies become really genius at this. We become the world leaders in basically making or democratizing photography. So you can see um, over the course of a short period of time, what cost you two fifty to buy in the 1840s and 50s uh, comes down to about 15 cents by the time the Civil War begins. And if you are, um, uh, if, if you're, you, you have to have, I think, some, you have had to have had some wealth to buy a daguerreotype. But by the time the carte de visite rolls around in America in 1860, it's a relatively inexpensive proposition. So here's the man, uh, Desdari is his last name. And um, so the story goes, in 1854, 
a French nobleman walked into his studio in Paris and said, Mr. Photographer, can you please put my uh, photograph on my calling card? And Desdari complied and, unbeknownst to him, created a sensation. Everyone in Paris wanted to have their image on a calling card and thus gave rise to the carte de visite or visiting card. And you'll notice they're about the size of a baseball card, which somehow is attractive to me. Um, so many cartes de visites were in homes across Europe that uh, something had to be done. So uh, the first photo albums were invented to um, house them. As late as the 1860s, in America, on the frontier, there's descriptions of frontier homes, log cabins, with crude homemade furniture inside, with stacks of cars to visit on them. This man, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes, uh, is someone, a couple years ago, I did a program and gave some extensive comments uh, He's, he's a very difficult and dense person uh, to, uh, uh, to quote. So I've really reduced a lot of his comments down um, to the single one. Uh, he, he, in 1864, um, said, or defined cards to visit or card photographs as the social currency, the sentimental greenbacks of civilization. Now, I've done some math, and my estimate here, if you have point two million Union soldiers that served, and if you take some large percentage of them and, and calculate that they sat once when they enlisted and once after the war was over and they ordered a dozen or two dozen copies, that would add up to 39.4 million photographs. Um, if 10% of those photographs survived, you've got 4 million that are out there today. And I really do think that this might even be a conservative, both of those numbers might be a conservative estimate. Um, you can go on uh, eBay, uh, not that it's a problem for me, uh, but you can go on eBay at any time and there's 50, at least 50 Civil War soldiers that have been posted in the last day for sale. So there's an amazing number, a rich visual um, uh, collection of images that are mostly out there in the public domain. Um, so back to getting uh, finding the photographs for the story. Um, you should know that I, I was really um, told uh, a couple things up front, uh, and one of them was from friends of mine, you will never find enough photographs to populate a book. Um, so I did set out to prove them wrong, and the first one came from here in Baltimore. And this is it. It's one of my favorite photographs. I found more in public institutions. Um, perhaps the most unique, the single most unique um, collection is at Yale University, um, it's an album that was put together by the officer standing on the right. His name is Theodore Wright. Um, he was from Massachusetts and uh, considered from a progressive and liberal family. Um, when he 
became an officer in the 108th U.S. Colored Infantry. He took his men um, to a studio in Rock Island, Illinois, where they were stationed, and had their photographs taken. And he put all the photographs in an album and presented it to his mother as a gift. On each photograph, he wrote the name of the soldier, identified their rank and their company, and then you can see in the smaller writing there, um, in most cases it looks like pencil or some faded pen. Um, He gives you a personal anecdote about something about their life experience, about maybe something about what happened to them before they came into the army, and then an evaluation of them as a soldier. Uh, this one makes me chuckle because I, I admire um, Lieutenant Wright for what he did. At the end of this note, um, I think he says uh, that the soldier, Jesse Hobson, is not very smart. But if you read the rest of the note, um, he managed to escape um, from his master and make it through the swamps um, without getting caught. So I think he was pretty smart. <laughs> um, this is the last photograph. Um, and it came from my home state of New Jersey. And um, he has a, um, uh, he served um, for only a few months in the Army. Um, but I think aesthetically it's a very pleasing photograph. So in telling the, the story um, of contributions by these men to the war, if I had stuck to the rules that I apply to my other books, I would only do soldiers. But in this case, if I was only doing soldiers, the time span would be from 1863 to 1867. Um, so I decided that I would also in- expand the book to include individuals who participated in the war as um, they go by various names, servants, bodyguards, aides-de-camp. The list goes on and on and on. Uh, one of the men uh, in the book is Robert Holloway, and he had served and been with Ambrose Everett Burnside, um, a very famous general. If you're new to the Civil War, you may not know his name, but you know the, um, the term sideburns um, comes from him. <laughs> uh, and uh, Robert Holloway um, uh, was with him since 1850. And uh, Robert Holloway was captured in battle at the first Battle of Bull Run. And um, Ambrose Burnside negotiated for his release and wound up doing a trade um, for five servants of Confederate officers for one Robert Holloway. And um, Robert Holloway came home uh, in 1862 and um, stayed with the general, um, I think, through his death and the, uh, through Robert Holloway's death um, in 1876. So um, the research, uh, primary source documents, the National Archives, is a great place. If you haven't been there or ordered the documents, I highly recommend a visit. Nowadays, they're digitized in the collection, but you can still go in and request these files. These are photographs that I made um, at my researcher's desk. On the top is the military service records, and um, they're pretty much a monthly or quarterly description of what happened to that soldier. And the envelope on the left, it's a thick cardboard envelope holds the monthly muster reports that you see in the center. And then there's also another envelope, a thinner envelope, that includes miscellaneous paperwork. Even more exciting 
uh, most of the soldiers or the widows filed for a pension, whether it was a disability or a widow's pension after the war. So what you see on the bottom is a much larger, almost a tabloid-sized envelope stuffed with various affidavits and other personal documents. Um, I found one significant difference between the African-American soldier um, files and when I when I requested those, I was normally brought two thick envelopes, and that's never happened before. I usually just get one. Um, and I soon discovered the reason why, the commonality, is the soldiers, in so many of the cases, um, they couldn't provide a document for their birth date, their marriage date, other significant dates in their life. So our federal government sent special examiners to Tennessee, to Mississippi, to Alabama, throughout, um, mostly throughout the southern states, to interview people um, to find out if they were who they said they were. And oftentimes, that included talking to their former masters. Um, so you can imagine some of the letters that are stuffed uh, unceremoniously into these envelopes are a treasure trove of information. So... I really wanted to do two things because so many people don't really know that soldiers, African-American men, served in the Civil War. One of the, one of the most common um, remarks that I got early on was, you mean buffalo soldiers, right? Um, and, I, and I had to take time to explain, well, no, I'm talking about the actual men who served from uh, 1863 to 1865. So I set out to do two things. I'm um, talk about who they were, and what they did. So let's take a look at some of the photographs um, that I found along the way and a little bit of their stories. Uh, John Hines um, escaped twice, uh, obviously not successful the first time. The second time he wound up in the camp of the 15th Pennsylvania Cavalry. At the time, the U.S. government had allowed the hiring of two undercooks of African descent, is the way it was worded. And um, this was before um, a lot of the other laws went into effect. And um, so John, whose nickname was Jack, he signed on as an undercook. And uh, it just so happens that his company was assigned to the headquarters of Major General um, William Rosecrans, who was unfortunately famous for the debacle um, at Chickamauga, and, uh, and John Hines was probably not far from the general when the camp was overrun, and um, he suffered an injury when he fell from his horse in the retreat, and uh, he went, went on to survive the war. Uh, William Wright, I found his photograph at an antique show in um, Richmond, Virginia, I couldn't believe it because <laughs> they so rarely, um, so rarely turn up. Um, William Wright uh, was released um, from bondage by his master who escorted him to the nearest Union camp to enlist. And uh, within nine months of his enlistment, he went from living on a farm in Kentucky to being one of the very first soldiers to walk into Richmond when the Confederate capital fell on April 3rd, 
This is Silas Johnson. Um, when the Union Army invaded Mississippi in the Vicksburg area, late 1862, early 1863, a lot of the folks on the Delta um, evacuated their plantations. And one of those plantations was called Altera, and it was owned by a woman named Louisiana Brown. And her husband was off in the Confederate Army. So she abandoned the plantation and took several slaves with her, including Silas. And uh, they made it as far as Alabama when Silas and one of the other slaves decided that uh, they had had enough. So they left at that point and made their way to Louisiana and joined the army. Abraham Brown was one of more than 20 Canadians that joined the 54th Massachusetts Infantry. He was also one of the first fatalities. Octavius McFarland, whose photograph graces the cover of the book, one of my very favorite images, which is um, part of the collection of the Gettysburg National Military Park, um, had come out of slavery in Missouri, had no reading and writing, but he was um, uh, part of a very motivated uh, regiment. The senior staff officers uh, had dedicated themselves um, to education. Uh, they fired off a number of general orders to try to ensure that their men were educated. Uh, one of those general orders read, quote, no freed slave who cannot read well has a right to waste the time and opportunity given, or pardon me, here given him to fit himself for the position of a free citizen. So they're really preparing these guys um, to enter what was to come. And um, uh, Octavius won a writing contest and received a gold pen for his efforts. I wish I could find the gold pen. <laughs> um, Anderson Abbott, another Canadian, um, although his parents um, were American, um, free Americans, but were eventually forced to flee the South um, uh, due to racial violence. This is back in the 1830s. And um, so Anderson was born in Canada. He graduated from the University of Toronto in 1861 um, and decided to come to his parents' um, uh, birth home and uh, serve the Union cause. Um, he came to Washington. Um, uh, among his friends was Elizabeth Keckley, um, who was uh, um, uh, uh, served Mary Todd Lincoln. And um, he knew Abraham Lincoln. And um, after President Lincoln was assassinated, um, he was among the first to visit him when his body was in the White House. And uh, the Link or Mary Todd Lincoln gave him one of President Lincoln's shawls to thank him for being a good friend. So um, what did they do in the war? Um, one of the other things that I was told uh, along the way was not only will you not find enough photographs, but black men basically served behind the lines and didn't play much of a role in the Civil War. I don't think that is true. There were a lot of men like Abram Garvin um, who served behind the lines. Um, he was at the prison camp. He was one of Lieutenant Wright's, um, uh, one of the men in Lieutenant Wright's company. And um, 
He spent most of the war behind the lines guarding prisoner of war camps, um, and he suffered, like many of the Confederate prisoners of war did, in the cold, frigid climate uh, in Rock Island, Illinois. So the tintype of George Commodore, it was stuck in his pension file, that envelope you saw that I showed in the image uh, earlier. And um, there was a note attached to it from his wife. Um, and it said, this is the only copy of my photograph, and please return it. Um, if the government dropped the ball on that one. Uh, uh, but in, 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 in another way, it was helpful to someone like me who was searching for these images and, and finding their stories. Um, he also served um, an important but little-remembered role um, on blockade duty. Um, he and his ship were oftentimes um, attached to a flotilla that patrolled the Potomac River and the Chesapeake Bay, trying to keep smugglers from bringing valuable supplies um, to the south. William Henry Scott, <coughs> excuse me, um, um, he escaped um, from a plantation in Virginia and stumbled into the camp of a Massachusetts infantry regiment where the gentleman below, um, Loring Muzzy, took young Henry, as he was called, under his wing and um, helped him to learn how to read and write. His mother, Muzzy's mother, um, sent a Bible and other books from home. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and um, uh, after the war, uh, William Henry Scott became a very popular minister, and the two men were lifelong friends. They lived near each other in Massachusetts and um, died as old men within a year of each other. There were also men who stayed loyal um, or remained in the South with their masters. Um, this photograph uh, has quite a history um, behind it. It's the only image I could find um, that was original wartime identified um, of a slave and, um, and his master. And um, I've since talked with the families of both the gentleman on the left, um, who was Andrew Chandler, and, um, and Silas Chandler's family. Um, his descendants live in Washington, D.C. Um, and in Texas. Uh, James Townsend made it all the way to the top of the parapet at Fort Wagner when overwhelming fire forced him and his comrades back on the way down from the parapet and back to the original starting place. He suffered a wound that kept him out of the rest of the war, but he was one of the, one of the lucky ones to survive. John Peck suffered the first of his three war wounds at the Battle of Alusty. That was the largest land battle in Florida. Um, it was very similar, uh, very similar in outcome to Fort Wagner, but proved again that these men could hold their own in battle with anyone. Taylor Aldridge. Uh, was one of the last to go into the crater. Um, he came out alive. A lot of his comrades didn't. 
And at the end of the war, uh, he wound up in Texas on the frontier um, as part of the American forces that the federal government had ordered to put up a show of force and remind the French who were occupying Mexico at the time um, that America still had some military might despite the outcome of the war or the difficulties during the war. Major Meekins um, was at New Market Heights. Most of his officers had fallen during the battle, and you can read all about this in the uh, official reports. Um, the sergeants in the regiment, including Major Meekins, basically took over um, or filled in where all the officers had fallen and um, kept the momentum going. Um, they scored some, some successes, and the battle didn't go quite as far as maybe some had hoped, but they managed to make, um, uh, make the best of a really difficult situation. John Spence was severely wounded uh, uh, in three places by an artillery shell um, during the Battle of New Market Heights, um, but he was recovered enough to participate in the capture of Fort Fisher, North Carolina. And um, this gentleman, um, George Mitchell, he was in a, a company um, that was at the very end, the rear guard of a column of retreating Union infantry in Texas near Palmetto Ranch. Their column was attacked by Confederates and forced to retreat back to their base. And during that retreat, the Confederates kept pushing and pushing and pushing, a running battle as they made their way back. All the time, Mitchell's company was was part of that rear guard. And um, it is... It is said and generally understood that um, it was Mitchell's company that fired the last hostile shots of the war. James Monroe Trotter. He was um, among the first, and some credit him as the first, to speak up when the decision came down that African-American soldiers were not going to be paid as much as their white counterparts. He said, um, we will not degrade the name of an American soldier by accepting less pay. It took him over a year um, of protests and not accepting their pay, but eventually the government reversed their decision, and James Monroe Trotter was one of the first to get his full paycheck. And there were men that went on um, after the war uh, to serve as Buffalo soldiers. Kendrick Allen was one of them. Um, he, um, after the war, he went uh, and became a stonemason, which is a trade that he had learned when he was a slave. Um, decided he didn't like doing that, and he liked the Army a lot better. So he went back into the Army and served until the late 1890s, retiring just before the Spanish-American War. So um, I started out tonight with a, a special memory of the um, newspaper article and uh, the story of Emancipation Day. And um, I wanted to end with uh, an excerpt from 
a letter that was written by this man. Um, he is a barber from Covington, Kentucky. He was born free. And um, when in October of 1864, it looked like President Lincoln might not get elected a second term, there was a lot of discussion about what that could possibly mean. So um, Sergeant Major Singer wrote an open letter and it was published in a newspaper. And here's part of what he says. Remember, soldiers, we are fighting a great battle for the benefit not only of the country, but for ourselves and the whole of mankind. The eyes of the world are upon us and on the result depends our future happiness. I hope that we may never see the day that we cannot speak for the cause of freedom. Why should we not cling with courage to this government, her interests, laws, and institutions? There are many reasons for so doing. It is not merely that I am grateful for the protection and citizenship that I may hope for, but I recognize in the stability of this government a source of strength to other nations. While this government stands, there is hope for the most abject, disabled, and helpless of mankind. Some say, show me what the colored man has to fight for, and then I will go. You cannot see it now. But wait. Wait until some future day, and it will unfold itself most gloriously to the whole country. Thank you. And uh, I, there's a microphone, but if you can just call out loudly. Yes, uh, the image first um, appeared on the Antiques Roadshow, and a friend of mine that lives in Hawaii called me up and said, you've got to watch this, because he knew I was working on the book. And um, the, uh, the gentleman who interviewed the person who had the photograph um, has a, an auction company, and so I emailed the auction house and said, I would like to find out who this person is and see if I could get the photograph. Um, and a couple weeks later, I got an email. And uh, that led to a meeting. It turns out that um, the gentleman lived in Washington, D.C. And so we had, and, and I live in Arlington. So we had uh, lunch at a Thai restaurant downtown. And I thought we might meet for an hour. And it, it took about three hours for the whole lunch. And at the end of it, he agreed to let me include the photograph in the book. And there came that point when I said, I need to get a really nice copy of the image. And he pulled out a very worn, faded, heavily retouched version. And I said, well, I would like to get the original that you showed on the Antiques Roadshow. So he reached into his briefcase, and he pulled out the original, and he handed it to me. And he said, take it, do what you need to do. I trust you. Get it back safely. Now, the thing is, I happen to know what the, because it's Antiques Roadshow, you know what the insurance value is? Guess how much? $30,000. <laughs> I can tell you that the trip, I was like shaking the entire time. It's very nerve-wracking. 
I, yes, sir, he was actually in the back. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the easier question to answer is, is the second one. Um, I, glory is not historically accurate in every respect. I think we all, we all acknowledge that. Um, and I think it's also fair to say that I, I don't know that I've seen a Hollywood film that is, um, uh, including Lincoln. So I, um, while I appreciate, um, what Glory tried to do in raising education and awareness um, of contributions of African Americans during the Civil War. Um, I'm comfortable leaving, leaving it at that. Um, if it left, uh, if the historical inaccuracies um, wound up being misrepresented or misunderstood, that's sort of another, um, a deeper, a deeper issue. But I tend to think that the benefits of the film probably outweighed the, the negatives. Um, your second question, um, early in the war, there are some references to, uh, black soldiers offering their services to the Confederate army. Um, the most famous example is in Louisiana. Um, uh, but, there's also no evidence to my knowledge, and I was not able to find any evidence that black soldiers actually fought in battles on behalf of the Confederacy. One of the reasons that this image has become, was very controversial um, was because um, uh, Silas Chandler was thought to be a black Confederate because of his uniform, the weapons he's holding, and his proximity to the white soldier. Um, and if you go online, you'll see a lot of stuff that you probably don't want to read uh, on the topic. Um, but I read it anyway, and I thought, well, let's try to get the facts. So I contacted the state of Mississippi um, because I figured, well, um, if there is a chance that Silas Chandler survived the war, he might have filed for a pension from the state of Mississippi because the federal government did not make pensions available to Confederate soldiers for the obvious reasons. So uh, the state of Mississippi uh, said, yes, uh, we have not only a pension file for Silas, but we also have one for Andrew. I said, well, I'll take them both. Uh, I think it cost me $2 each. So I sent my $4 uh, in, and um, they sent me the pension files, and the mystery was solved as soon as I saw the pension files. The one for Andrew on the left, in very small letters, uh, basically says, um, pension from pension application from the state of Mississippi for a Confederate soldier. Silas's application says, pension for the servant of a Confederate soldier who fought from the state of Mississippi. So the state of Mississippi, what I learned, I didn't know this, uh, was that they offered um, pensions to servants. And I have seen um, photographs of servant reunions um, from Confederate officers. So no question, Silas, what became so controversial about this image is that it's the only one that I know of that is an identified Um, African-American man with a Confederate soldier. So um, that was taken during the wartime. There were thousands 
of men who served um, with white soldiers um, for the Confederacy. But to my knowledge, there's still no proof that there was one that was in, a man that was enlisted as a black soldier. Oh, oh, sorry. Hi. Um, thank you for your presentation. Um, I would be interested if your research um, went beyond 1865. Did you follow any of the soldiers? And if so, how did their lives, say, on into Reconstruction differ <laughs> from uh, African-Americans who did not serve in the military? It's, a, it's, a, it's, 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 it's an excellent question. Um, I followed these men and their families um, all the way until um, they passed away, and then in some cases beyond that, um, so that I could get a sense of uh, what happened to them after that. And um, I, your question makes me think of when I started the presentation talking about the spirit of the age that seemed like anything was possible. Um, I think it really does end in 1865. Immediately upon the end of the war, um, the rights, um, I don't even know if you could call them rights, the gains um, that these families had made um, during the war began to erode almost immediately. Um, The government tried, uh, I I give the federal government a lot of credit. Um, The Freedmen's Bureau, a lot of very interesting programs that we don't have time to detail about um, land ownership, land grants, schools um, is worthy of. Uh, we could easily have another conversation um, about that. Um, despite their best efforts, um, even before the official declared dates of Reconstruction ending, um, everything began to erode. And you have men like uh, William Wright, um, if I can find his image quickly. <clears throat> ah, yeah, William Wright. Um, after um, he, he's he's the gentleman who goes into Richmond on April 30, 1865, and he winds up in the army um, until 1867. He goes home to Kentucky, and um, his his former master is still there, and basically they're working the farm together. You've probably heard these kinds of stories before. They work together on the farm, but there's vigilante groups that are in the area, and the former master, despite his best efforts, he cannot stop these vigilante groups from raiding the land that he's on and the land that William Wright and his family are on. So um, the Wright family eventually is forced to leave, and they, I think they eventually settle in Iowa, if my memory is correct, and... Um, his wife, whom he married in Kentucky, die shortly after they get to Iowa. And um, he remarries and um, lives out a relatively quiet life in a safer place. Um, but the general answer is that right from, you know, from 1865, it just begins to deteriorate. Um, I don't think that, I don't believe these dates, you know, it didn't just start at a certain date. It just gradually ate away. Um, and... Um, it, it is some of the some of the some of the deepest sadness I think for me is reading those documents um, because these men were so full of hope and to not see that realized in their lifetimes um, is a difficult it's difficult to read. Yeah, I mean, very good presentation. I want to ask about the ladies. In your research, did you come across the African American uh, women 
making a strong contribution to war effort, uh, helping their husbands out, or in some cases, <laughs> or whatever the situation, making an effort. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, uh, definitely, um, definitely examples of that. I, um, you know, the, the roles of men and women and, and gender during that time period, of course, is so much different than it is today. Um, having said that, I know there's documentation of um, women that served in the Civil War as soldiers. I, I was not able to find any documented black women that served in uniform, but there certainly was, I think, as many as 400, according to some book that I saw come out. Um, so there was contributions in other ways. I mentioned up front, um, Fort Scott, um, the women uh, contributed three flags for the regiment. Um, and a little bit more so, uh, Robert Smalls, who I think many of you may know from um, the story of the planter um, in South Carolina. He basically um, hijacked, stole, captured uh, is the word that, that he used, um, a Confederate ship um, that was in Charleston Harbor and sailed it out. Um, it's a, an absolutely wonderful story. And um, his story is documented in the book. And the reason I mention it is um, I found an interview with his wife in a newspaper. I believe the interview was done in 1867. And um, she lays out her contribution, um, which was getting everyone together, um, meeting them at the wharf. And um, so she was sort of acting as helping organize um, this activity. And also... Um, she, she, it was by her description that I was able to find the only account of someone who was there saying that if they were going to be captured, if they didn't make it into Charleston Harbor, the plan was to blow up the ship and jump overboard all hand in hand and go overboard. They, fortunately, they did not have to do that. Um, although once they got into Charleston Harbor, it was early in the morning, it was very foggy, and the Union blockade, the ships were all out there, and they're all very um, fidgety. They're on alert because rumors have circulated that the Confederates have a ram, and they're going to take this ram ship, and they're going to plow into all the Union vessels. So out of the fog in the early morning comes the planter, which is, it's a, it's a transport, so it's a, a civilian ship that's been outfitted for military use. And um, the instinct of the Union ships is to attack. So the ship comes in, and this is another account that I, I hadn't seen before. Um, the ship comes in and comes alongside and tells Robert Smalls, you know, stop the ship, pull alongside, um, and surrender. And Smalls or the crew, they, they don't hear the exchange because these guys are yelling across the waves. And um, they don't obey the call um, of the Union Navy ship to stop. And they're just about to fire on the planter when uh, they do understand the communication and the ship comes in and Robert Smalls goes on board and says, I have four guns that were intended for a Confederate fort, including one um, uh, that was at Fort Sumter, and here you go. So I wonder if we can go back to that photo we were discussing earlier. Mm -hmm. So I just have a, a, a kind of comment and then a curious question about your collection. Mm -hmm. so, so someone asked earlier about mm -hmm. how many uh, blacks served in the Confederacy. I've seen some estimates about mm -hmm. 65,000 blacks mm -hmm. in the Confederate ranks. Mm -hmm. And there was 
was at least one commissioned officer. His last name was Washington. His first name escapes my, my mm -hmm. mind, but he was a non-commissioned uh, officer mm -hmm. who served in, uh, in Texas. And toward the end of the Civil War, uh, the Confederates tried to build up their black ranks, probably a desperate uh, move on their uh, behalf. And they also had sort of a, what copied the North by creating what they called the Confederate States of College Troops, or that was the name of something like that. But just aside, his posture, this, this guy's posture, is quite different than the other soldiers that mm -hmm. they showed. And to me, like when I read this, um, sort of looking at it, it, it was quite striking to me his facial expression, his shoulders. You know, the way this gun is sort of just laid there. It's like, okay, let me pose for this picture because I'm next to, you know, NASA here. Yeah. Um, which really speaks to how um, probably a large majority of those who did serve in the Confederate ranks did so under some sort of duress or because they they had to. So that was just sort of a curious observation. Yeah, and it, it, it's one that the family uh, makes. Um, Silas's uh, descendants, um, uh, uh, one of the surviving descendants that lives in Texas um, has made, ex made exactly um, the same point. His posture, the way he's looking, um, he appears to be sitting back a little further in the chair and slightly... Um, slightly slumped, his body language appears to be leaning away. Um, and it's hard to, it's hard to evaluate um, that with any certainty. The facts um, are interesting to consider. If you look at his military, or look at um, accounts that um, were written at the time, um, letters that went back and forth between Andrew and his family in Mississippi, um, they're, if they are to be believed, and there's no reason that, that they're not, um, Silas was dispatched on numerous occasions um, from Mississippi to camp um, where Andrew was uh, located with supplies and things from home. And Silas didn't take the opportunity to escape on any of those occasions. Another interesting fact is... Uh, Andrew was wounded in battle, um, I believe it was at Chattanooga, um, suffered a leg wound, and um, Silas and others credit, um, they credit Silas with having saved his master's life, um, and I also should say technically, he wasn't really, um, Andrew wasn't his master per se, um, Silas Silas's master was really Andrew's mother, that seemed to be the way that it was um, officially understood in the family. It's reading between the lines of the surviving letters. Um, at any rate, um, when this, as the story goes, uh, a surgeon was going to amputate Andrew's leg, and Silas stepped in, took Andrew out of the hospital, loaded him on a train, and took him to Mississippi, back home, and that is credited with saving his life. Andrew did not return to war, but Andrew's younger brother, Benjamin, did go into the war, into a cavalry regiment. And so Silas then became servant to Benjamin. And Benjamin stayed all the way past the end of the war. I mean, 
past Lincoln's assassination. And when Jefferson Davis and his entourage fled um, Richmond, along the way, cavalry, um, Confederate cavalry escorted the entourage as they were making their way down south. And so Benjamin's unit with Silas were part for a time of Jefferson Davis's entourage. At some point, as all the Union patrols and regiments began to close in, Jefferson Davis and his, imagine his entourage with a very large escort of Confederate cavalrymen became very conspicuous traveling across the countryside of North Carolina, South Carolina, into Georgia. So it's in Georgia when they, so the story goes, is they took some of the Confederate gold and paid off um, a lot of the Confederate cavalrymen, sent them on their way, and left a very small group, which was captured, I think, on May 10th. don't quote me on the date, but uh, in, in, in May of 1865. And um, uh, uh, I think it was May 7th when Benjamin turned himself in and Silas wound up in Georgia at that time too. Um, and then he went back to Mississippi and raised his family. And in my curious question, mm-hmm. Yes, and and there's there's examples in the book um, of of men who are clearly um, the product of um, some sort of uh, racial marriage or, or or not a marriage or some some, some something that happened there. Um, and I I apologize, I don't have the number in my head, um, but the number of references and pension files to um, half white. Um, uh, German, um, French, English. There's a, there's, uh, I, I was, um, um, uh, I was shocked, um, to say the least by the number of references. And then others who are saying there's other references to, um, Indian, uh, Native American blood. And I'm not so sure that that's, wasn't a way of maybe, um, maybe not disclosing some family information that was a bit too too sensitive, um, but um, it is surprising the way um, uh, the thing that shocked me most about the letters uh, is actually the affidavits and the pension files um, when the special examiners went down to to interview the former slave owners the way the way um, slave ownership is discussed so openly and so matter-of-factly um it's it's so it's so disarming and so jarring to someone from the 21st century um i i I can't i don't know that i i have the 
the power to find the words to tell you how deeply unsettling it feels to read these things. But at the same time, when you begin to intellectual, when I begin to intellectualize it, I start to think, well, this is this is the life that they lived, and they don't seem to have, in some cases, to have looked very far beyond that. Um, and clearly, they're trying to come to terms or not. Um, and you see this evidenced by um, the reactions that some of the slave owners have. Some of them, like William Wright's uh, master, um, seems to be understand what's going on and 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 does what seems to be in the spirit of the age. Others, like Jesse Hobson, um, the one who I showed with his um, image, the back and the front, um, he escaped. Uh, and this is, I think, 1864. And his master immediately goes out to get his get his property back and chases him through swampland for over 50 miles. Um, Jesse Hobson finally surfaces in Paducah, Kentucky, a month later after a route through the um, through the pardon. Exactly, but to but to read the letters uh, and see that it's so stark, it's it's just shocking. When you first read it, it's just so absolutely shocking. Um, that was my gut reaction, um, uh, and then you start to understand how the various individuals um, mentally dealt with that, um, and you realize that that time period in history is so much more complicated than we've, we've tried to, you know, over time, things tend to get a little bit, you try to simplify and make things um, into understandable bits. And once you start getting into that world and that time, you realize that it's a very different place and it's filled with subtlety. And the meaning that I've tried to convey with these stories um, is just the beginning I, I see this book, and I hope that this book is the beginning um, of more scholarship that's driven by the stories and the families from their viewpoint, um, what their experiences were. And a lot of this, if, if, if I, I don't think I could have done this book if it was another generation, maybe the, the Civil War centennial, there's no way that I could do this book. The internet and the modern conveniences of technology have surfaced photographs, documents, letters, um, like Confederate soldier documents in Michigan, um, African-American documents. It's, just, it's all over the place. And um, so much personal stuff is coming up. And years ago, that wasn't the case. Um, I really do believe that what's in the book is just a fraction um, of, of of what's out there. In the last couple of years, since or, since August, uh, September, when the book came out, um, I check. I go on Google and do image searches because I was frantic when I first started trying to find photos. And now it seems like every week there's new images coming online um, that weren't there. Um, so I love that that's happening. Um, there's a, a rich story to be told or retold or understood um, for our generation. I just want to make another comment. Sure. One of the biggest problems okay. is... The hardest question was to have these signed books. Okay. 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 So one, of the, one of the most difficult things is that our history is not in history books. Yes. So, 
And the thing is, and I, I have to tell you that um, I feel some responsibility for that because when I began writing 15 years ago, um, I was basing everything on the photographs that I collected. I do it completely backwards from other researchers. I start with the photo. I, yes, I know, but I'm, I'm just, my, my point is when I first started out, it wasn't something that I was thinking about. But when you start to see these photographs, you realize these stories need to be told. And I want more of this because I think that these are truly the transformative stories of the war. And it transformed my thinking about the war. So, I, I, again, I don't want to sound like a broken record, but this, I, I hope uh, that this is the beginning of expanding the scholarship and getting out the word to mainstream historians that you cannot tell a story of the Civil War unless you understand the African-American perspective. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.